we can do it. It is absolutely possible. You know, as, as much as One Green Thing is talking about leaning into hope, it's talking about climate solutions, the technology and the solutions are all there. We can really mitigate, I mean, climate change is already happening, but we can mitigate those effects and put a cap on where we're headed. You're listening to episode eight of The Nature of Nurture, a podcast for your mental health. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Carr, and these episodes are meant to be consumed in order, at least on some level. In order to understand the full context of this discussion, you might want to back up and start at the beginning. If you don't want to do that, just know that this whole series is about human psychology as it exists in the context of our lives, including the quality of our relationships and the ways in which we live as part of the fabric of a broader culture. We are inseparable from one another, we human beings. And we're inseparable from the environments we live in. In that vein, today's episode is about how people are feeling about climate change. Today's guest is Heather White, the founder and CEO of a brand new nonprofit called One Green Thing. I'm popping this in here as one last bonus episode because after I created the podcast and told everyone to expect six episodes, I joined One Green Thing as a board member. The launch of that organization and my passion for its mission made me really want to bring Heather on so that we could talk about this together. One Green Thing is devoted to approaching the climate crisis as a psychological crisis. And that's how I got involved. Heather is a longtime climate activist. She and her husband have both been really active in this space for the past 20 years. In addition, they're now parents to two Gen Z girls, and their daughter's anxieties about the future of the planet has fueled and transformed Heather's sense of purpose here. Heather's background is that she's an environmental lawyer, and she served on Capitol Hill as counsel to Senator Russ Feingold. She was also a presidential campaign staffer for Al Gore in 2000, and she was one of his recount attorneys. She was the executive director of the Environmental Working Group, the director of education advocacy at the National Wildlife Federation, and she's the former president of Yellowstone Forever, the nonprofit partner to Yellowstone National Park. In addition to all of this, she's my friend. So I'm thrilled to share this interview with you so that you can just hear us jam a little bit about this subject together. I love talking to Heather and I think this conversation is great. So about what you're going to hear about today. As I said earlier, Heather has two Gen Z age daughters. They're about 14 and 16. And their fears about the future of the planet has really honed Heather's attention in on the anxiety that young people are feeling about the climate crisis today. Heather uses the phrase eco-anxiety when she talks about this, which is not quite yet a clinical term, although it might be someday. And it's not at all to say that the anxiety about the future of the planet is reserved for young people. It's not. But they are perhaps feeling it most acutely, and for good reason. I don't want to step too much all over the discussion you're about to hear. I actually just want to drop you in on it. But I'll share something that will help you to understand how I feel about this issue and I'll contextualize it in this first season of the podcast. If you've listened to past episodes, you may have heard me say that I consider myself to be a quote-unquote spiritual person in a sort of quantum sense of the word. I've been reading books about theoretical physics since I was in college, and my mother, who's no longer with us, deserves credit for having gotten me into that, so thanks, Mom. And I'll put some links into the show notes for some of my favorite books on this subject. On a molecular level, at the level of pure physics. All we are is clusters of vibrating atoms. I can knock on a table, and that table feels solid to me. It feels like a hard surface, because the atoms in the table are vibrating faster than the atoms in my hand are, which is why I can't put my hand through the table. The point that I'm trying to make by bringing this up is that we are not, fundamentally speaking, at this level of reality separate from the planet as people. At the level of our physical reality, the planet is one gigantic, living, breathing organism. And all of the things that are connected to it by its gravity, which is to say, human beings, animals of all kinds, water, plants, and the very atmosphere itself, we are all part of a gigantic, connected ecosystem atoms vibrating at varying rates of speed in an interconnected fashion. So the health of the planet, our water supply, the food that we eat and the air that we breathe, 
It impacts our physical health. It impacts our mental and emotional health, our genes and our epigenetics, all of it. Our mental health is inseparable from the planet because we are inseparable from the planet. And if there's anything that COVID has taught us, it's just how connected we are to each other. So as you listen to me chat with my buddy Heather here, as we connect some dots between things that in the past maybe have seemed unrelated, keep that in mind. All of the things we've talked about on this podcast so far, COVID, the Black Lives Matter movement, our relationships with our parents, our peers, our government, it's all about to come full circle right here. What makes you passionate about this topic? Personal experience is what makes me passionate about this topic. So, of course, my background is environmental law, environmental policy. I care so deeply about the earth and the future. But being a mom of two teenagers has really kind of hit home with eco-anxiety for me because my children have it. And the way that I came to understand how it manifested to them was just really surprising to me. So that's really what brought me to the topic. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about that? How did you come to learn about it? Sure. Well, it was September 2019. And my older daughter, who was a freshman in high school, really wanted to participate in the Greta Thunberg uh, climate strike. So she said, Mom, is it okay? You know, Dad, are you all right if I walk out? And we said, of course, because this is what we do for a living. And we thought it was really important for her to express herself. And I noticed, though, that there were thunderstorms. And it's kind of rare to have thunderstorms in Montana. And so uh, there are going to be thunderstorms that day. And I just said to her, hey, you know, Katie, if you want, I can just pick you up and then drive you to the, the site so you don't have to carry your backpack and your trumpet and all this heavy stuff that high schoolers have now to the, to the strike. And that didn't go over well. <laughs> this was at the dinner table. She did not receive that offer of help. Yeah. Well. Can you say a little bit about why <laughs> or how? How did she interpret that offer? She was mad. She was really mad. She she said, you know, you got to be kidding me. Mom, first of all, it's a walkout. The whole point <laughs> is a walkout. Like, and even though I have your permission, you know, to have you waiting there in a car. And she's like, secondly, it's a car. And you're going to drive me to a climate strike when we're talking about kind of breaking our addiction to fossil fuels. And thirdly, you know, what, what she came to really push us on is that, you know, here you are, mom, trying to take away the burden of me carrying a heavy backpack and my trumpet in the rain. But what are you doing? And what is your generation doing to fight climate? And it was almost at this point where I was like, wait, 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 but look what I've done for the last 25 years. Here's my resume. You know, I worked on the Hill. I did all this stuff, but it was just, it was so interesting because that, you know, it's just your parents. You don't think about what your parents do for a living. And if you're not talking about it around the table, if you're not having these conversations about climate, what it means to your generation's future and what you were doing, no matter which generation you're part of, it doesn't really seem real to this, these, these young folks. So that's kind of how I came to really get interested in this concept and research eco-anxiety. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah, and so there's so much that I want to talk about in sort of this kind of modern, current eco-anxiety space. But before we do that, I just want to back up a little bit because I feel like one of the things that is so kind of fascinating and even just sort of devastating about what you're describing right now is that I know that your your history in this space, like you said, goes back, you know, 20, 20 plus years. So I'm just trying to imagine what it must be like for you to be having a conversation like this with your daughter, with the state of the world being what it is right now, given the fact that your passion, you know, has gone back a long way about this. Can you just say a little bit about You know, I know you read Al Gore's book. It seems like that woke something up in you. Can you tell the listeners just a little bit about what even your early awakening around your passion for climate change was? Absolutely. Well, I was always interested in science and interested in politics. And I grew up in East Tennessee, right near the Great Smoky Mountains. So I spent a lot of time in outdoor spaces with my my family. It was a really important part growing up. And my dad was a scientist. My mom was a counselor, which is kind of funny looking back about how that kind of blends together in this area that I've found myself in. But 
when I, I graduated high school in 91 and 92, Earth and the Balance by Al Gore came out. And he, of course, was vice president, but also from Tennessee. So I was really interested in his book. And that's really when I started thinking about climate in uh, a policy, kind of policy way. And from then at UVA, I studied environmental science. I ended up going to study abroad in the University of Otago in Dunedin, which is where I really decided I wanted to be an environmental lawyer. And even then the professors were talking about the challenges that they saw with climate change and these rare species that we were studying. And then I also um, went to law school in Tennessee, thinking that would be kind of where I would put my roots down. And I ended up kind of moving all over the place. But while I was at Tennessee, I also went to law school at the University of Nairobi Law School in Kenya, and and then also talked a lot about climate and the impacts of wildlife there. So I became very, I mean, so really since, gosh, the 90s, I've been studying climate. I've been studying the impacts of climate on, on wildlife, but also on people. And that's uh, kind of where my work at Environmental Working Group and on Capitol Hill, I work for Senator Feingold of Wisconsin, working on his energy and environment policy council to him there, and then ended up um, most recently working uh, with a nonprofit partner to Yellowstone National Park. And that, of course, climate is front and center on all things that are happening in Yellowstone too. Yeah. So that's, that's, but, but like to, to give you, as you were saying, so like that context thinking like, that's like, you know, 20, maybe it's closer to 25 years now of, of my work experience to have my kids saying, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, no, seriously. No, it cracks me up, honestly. <laughs> like, really, mom, was, what are you doing? It was very humbling. It was very humbling, for sure. <laughs> yeah, seriously. You know, as we kind of start to talk about, I actually watched something pretty discouraging right before we logged on. CNN is doing, was displaying this infographic that I guess they created with Google satellite images of just climate change over the course of the last 40 years. And so I think one of the things that I love about the work that you do and your approach to it is it's actually really quite positive, despite how devastating all of this is. But as we talk about eco-anxiety and everything that's happening here, I kind of want to do double duty and ask you worst case scenario questions and best case scenario questions. So let's maybe start with the worst so that we can end on a more uplifting note. Sure. Given what you're talking about with your history in this space and what your children are grappling with right now, maybe we can just talk a little bit about like what's happening to the planet. Where is your focus right now when you think about how urgent this issue is? It's never been more urgent. So in April 2021, Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii, which for 50 years has been recording atmospheric carbon dioxide levels recorded 421 ppm of carbon dioxide, which is a record. And just for those who are familiar with this space, 350.org, a fantastic climate organization to check out. Yeah. It's 350 based on 350 ppm because that was what was considered a wake-up call 15 years ago when that organization was was founded. So um, that's that's just happened recently, this 421 um, PPM. I'm assuming PPM, by the way, is parts, parts per million. million. Yeah. So I'm just saying that as a, as a data point, but, but that's super technical, but just thinking back about what's ha- what happened in 2020. I mean, obviously we had the pandemic, <laughs> but uh, which get, which is related to climate in many respects, but t- pandemic aside, we had a hundred degree Fahrenheit temperature record in the Arctic circle. We had something like 48 square miles of, um, the Greenland uh, shelf, our, our Arctic, Arctic um, iceberg just fall off. We had more hurricanes in the Atlantic than we've ever had. So we had to move from the traditional nomenclature A through Z, you know, Hurricane Alicia or Hurricane Katrina, you name it. Um, we had to move from A to A to Z to the Greek alphabet. Uh, we also had the devastating wildfires in California. I know we connected with each other uh, when that mm-hmm. was happening. I lived through that. Lived it was through a that. nightmare. Yeah, the yeah. orange skies. I mean, apocalyptic oh, yeah. orange skies. So um, that's just what we've seen. And that's just the United States perspective, really, what we've seen and read about. Um, but really intense floods, droughts. It's bad. Um, the New York Times had a wonderful piece. When I say wonderful, I mean it wasn't positive, but wonderful in that it was really well done about climate migration and the reality that we're going to start seeing in the United States because of these catastrophic um, weather events. 
Yeah. So when your kids tell you what they're anxious about, where, where is their attention? What types of things do you hear them saying? You know, it's interesting because I feel like the eco-anxiety part, so they're, they're, they're concerned about climate migration. They're concerned about wildfires. It's a huge issue here in Montana. There are times where the air quality in Bozeman is worse than LA, but it's, it's um, the particulate matter is not coming from smog. It's coming from wood particles PPM 2.5 is what it's called, you know, a particular matter for the, from the burning of the uh, forest fires. So they're concerned about those types of events. They're also really concerned, and, and I feel like for a lot of Generation Z, and those are children born after 1997, is what um, that segment that I'm really focused on in my research. The whole issues of in- income inequality and racial justice have kind of all merged into this concept of climate justice. So that's something that we talk a lot about. You know, 2019, the fall of 2019 is when I first started doing this research. And then the next summer, the murder of George Floyd happened. And, you know, I will say within, I'd say that that period of time from 2019 to now, I've been in more protests than I have in my entire life. (laughs) And and I've got to say, that um, I'm a lawyer. I'm not really the one that protests. Normally, I'm the one that helps get people you know, out of trouble when they are protesting, but I have been doing this at the request of these teenage kids that I have. Wow. They're the ones that are saying, please come with us. Please stand up with us. Please stand up next to us. So, so that's kind of how it manifests. There are specifically concerns about the weather-related events and the temperatures, but all of these issues have started to combine in climate justice as something that's front and center for them. Yeah, that's so interesting. That reminds me of something that I thought about a lot throughout 2020. I'll be curious to hear what you think about this, is that if you think about George Floyd, um, there was actually one other um, Black man who died. There's more than more than one person, George Floyd and somebody else, who said the words, I can't breathe, as they were dying. And I'm forgetting the name of the other person, which is horrifying, but obviously these are a lot of cases to track and to, to hold on to, which is a big part of why this whole, that whole story is so horrifying. Hi, everybody. Leslie here. At the time of this recording, I was torn between the names Eric Garner and Freddie Gray, afraid that I would say the wrong name. It turns out that in addition to George Floyd, the phrase, I can't breathe, is attributed to both Eric Garner and Freddie Gray. Eric Garner died of suffocation during a chokehold in police custody in Staten Island, New York, on July 17, 2014. Freddie Gray died on April 19, 2015, in police custody in Baltimore, Maryland. He had sustained injuries to his spinal cord during his arrest. In addition to George Floyd, both men can be heard saying the words, I can't breathe, shortly before they died. If you think about George Floyd, I can't breathe... COVID, people not being able to breathe because of COVID, I sure as hell felt it when sky was on fire and we were, you know, under thick, heavy smoke for a month in Northern California and like the better part of the state of California last August, September was really smoky. It's just interesting to think about these, like this odd theme of I can't breathe being like the statement of 2020, I think on so many levels. Yes. And so it's interesting to hear you saying how these things are kind of coming together and how your kids are looking at these things as not unrelated issues. Cause I agree. I don't think they're yes. unrelated. It's like the, yes. the feels to me like the planet is on fire in more ways than one. I, I think that's a very poetic and haunting way to say it, but I absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about even COVID as being something that's related to climate change. I have heard a lot of people say that and sort of epidemiologists saying that, and this is a very scary thought to me, that pandemics may be more common in the future because of the devastation of the planet. Yes, yes. And that whole area is being researched a lot more. Most of the research that I'm familiar with dealt with diseases that weren't necessarily communicable human to human. But as as, as I'm saying this, I'm realizing that COVID there was concern about, you know, first identified in the bat species. But as more and more, uh, David Quammen, who is actually a writer, also a writer in Bozeman, I highly recommend his research and his books. He's done several works in The New Yorker where he talks about these new strands. It started with stars, and now we're talking about COVID. 
and about how global warming can increase this transmission. But also there's a tremendous amount of research that I'm more familiar with that talks about diseases like yellow fever um, that are transmitted by mosquitoes. And as the earth warms up, the range of insects that can carry these pathogens increases as well and increases the likelihood that we'll be exposed. So but I mean, it's really, these are intense times and they've always been intense. Please don't get me wrong that they haven't been intense, you know, in the eighties during the cold war or in the heart of the civil rights movement in the sixties. But I think that what we're finding with social media and is, is that people are more aware in ways they haven't been before. Absolutely. And also it feels important for me to say that when we talk about, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement being related to the idea that the planet is on fire, I don't, I wouldn't want anyone to misunderstand what it is that I'm trying to communicate because the Black Lives Matter movement didn't start in 2020. Of course. Yeah. I just know that for me personally, when I was kind of watching the news just during the pandemic with all of this, I just, I mean, 2020 was a wild year and it felt to me like it was a year of radical awakening. Yes. Like on a kind of psycho-spiritual level, it felt like a year of radical awakening. And I I personally, just when I was watching, because there's um, an episode that's going to come out before this is, a, is about um, race relations in the United States. And I, I just, I personally, it was violent and it was terrifying. And I also found it to be beautiful. Like let the Black Lives Matter movement as it was really inflamed in 2020, just because when change, when big change needs to happen, it tends to happen in really big ways. Like it's not, not pretty sometimes in the process of it. And that kind of makes me wonder, like, does something similar need to happen in the climate change space? Yeah. I, and I think it is, I think it's all merging in a very powerful, potentially powerful way, just with the new administration coming in. Environmental justice is something that the president of the United States said in the first week in office which has never happened before. This idea that when we think about social justice, the environment is at the core of it. And organizing, just to your point about Black Lives Matter, organizing around environmental justice issues have been, has been happening for decades. You know, It was part of the civil rights movement in the 60s and uh, so much work being done in Cancer Alley in Louisiana and all these other communities that have been hit hard by petrochemical industry, manufacturing, uh, and other, other you know, dirty, dirty industries. I mean, that also created jobs. I understand that, but huge polluters and frontline communities, often communities of color have been organizing for a really long time to make sure that we enforce our environmental laws. But I think we're going to see more and more of that. And I guess I would say too, Leslie, one of the things that I thought was really interesting in my research is that when we think about Generation Z and we think about how anxious they are, and often they're called the most anxious generation, mm -hmm. we think about social media, but a lot of what I think grownups think young kids are doing is that they're like, Leslie was at this party and she was talking to Heather and, oh my gosh, they were wearing this cool outfit, but, you know, but so-and-so wasn't invited. Uh, they think it's the fear of missing out, but a lot of these young people are sharing news articles about the pain in the world, whether it be a stranded polar bear, you know, or it be, you know, um, human rights protesters in Hong Kong being arrested you know, whether it be, you know, another police shooting, it's just, it, it, they are, they're sharing a lot of pain at light speed. Mm -hmm. And I feel like on one hand, it is really powerful and important. And on the other hand, it's increasing the anxiety that young people are feeling. So like, I guess as, as uh, you know, for, for you as a psychologist, you know, there is good stress. There is such thing as good stress, but it can also reach to a point where it can become a barrier to change and a barrier. And that's kind of where my research is trying to like, you know, focusing on, on how can we use that anxiety and turn it into a force for energy and, and, and action. Um, and then if people are tipping over into another area where it's debilitating for them to reach out to folks like you for professional support. You know, I just know that for me, when I think about all of this stuff, a lot of what I think about is, um, decisions that people are making around parenthood, like whether or not, you know, here you are talking about your children having anxiety about all of this stuff. I'm sure you have anxiety about it too, you know? And then I think about the, just the decision that some people are making about whether or not to have kids. What are, what are you noticing? It's a huge, huge topic among Gen Z. The Guardian recently did a whole story about this. More and more Gen, Gen Zers are telling their parents 
and also making the decision that they're not going to have kids. And I, I personally have a friend whose high school daughter said to her parents, I'm not going to have children. And the reason I'm not going to have children is that we have 10 years to save this planet from climate change. And I'm not convinced that we can do it. And I don't think it'd be fair to bring another being into the planet. I mean, that is a lot for a 16-year-old to say. It, it really, really is. Yeah. Yeah. And especially for 16. I mean, I actually have to say that the thing that I see the most clinically in terms of when this shows up in my office, that's usually the form that it takes, is people wondering if they should have children. And, and they're, you know, they're not teenagers. They're, they're absolutely, generally speaking, at the age when people would be thinking about this stuff. And it's, a, it's a, just a challenge for me to really stay neutral as I help them figure out what's best for them. Because I think that one of the things that's so hard to figure out and kind of unpack around all of this stuff, and I don't, I don't think there's any right answer, but it's hard to say what people should do when you look at the data. I mean, to your point, if, it's, if we have, quote unquote, 10 years left to solve this problem, you know, how much hope can a person retain that it's a problem that's going to be solved? It's hard, but I think what I would say is that we don't really have another option. <laughs> that's what I keep saying to right. my kids. It's like, yeah, the, the answer is hope because that's what we've got. You know, we have to, we have to. And I think there are also uh, a lot of folks who are talking about eco-anxiety are also thinking about activists who are tired. And there is this, you know, folks like the Sunrise Movement, which are just an amazing group of young people that are doing all they can on climate. It's exhausting. It's exhausting work, especially when you're thinking about the intersection between climate and racial justice and climate justice. So you have to take care of yourself. You're not going to do it all right. You know, it's, I think that's one of the things that I'm trying to bring more people into the movement by saying, come as you are. And you don't have to have, $30,000 to put solar panels on top of your house in order to be part of the climate movement. And, you know, thank you for bringing your, your reusable bags, but there's more than you can do than that. You know, it's not just skipping the straw, but we do need you to take these daily actions and start talking and having these important conversations about climate and its impacts. And that means hearing some young people tell you they don't want to bring children into the earth, some for overpopulation, some because they're not sure what those kids will be inheriting. And obviously, to your point, as a, as a you know, mental health professional, your job isn't to provide the answer, mm -hmm. but it is hard as a friend, you know, as a, a parent, a, a family member, what do, you, what do you say? And so my response has been, you know, you obviously have to make whatever choice is right for you, but, you know, I choose hope because that's, that's all we've got. We've got to do it, hope in action together. In order, in order to really make a difference. One of my favorite podcasts is the Slate Political Gab Fest. I don't know if you listen to any Slate podcasts, and they had done a bonus segment on this topic. And David Plotz, one of the hosts, just said a line that is very memorable to me: that a, a world without children would be a world without hope. Yeah, yeah. You know, if if people stop reproducing, right? Very clinical language yes. because of this. Yeah. It's, it's uh, a lot. It's a lot. That's what. <laughs> so here you are coming out with a book and you also just announced the launch of your nonprofit, yes. One Green Thing or OneGreenThing.org. Yes. And perhaps you could tell our listeners a little bit about what what that whole program oh, is thank up to. You so What's one much. green thing about? Thank you so much, Leslie, and thank you for your leadership and being on the board of directors. We're thrilled. I'm so thrilled oh, to be there. We're thrilled you. to have you. So this is a new nonprofit, and the mission is really to take this feeling of climate anxiety and overwhelm and tackle it through joyful daily action. And the idea is that these joyful daily actions, a one green thing, a practice of sustainability that you can have each day will help create momentum for culture change. So we're very clear that an individual will not solve climate change. 
know, if you are, if you go vegan and ride your bike for the rest of your life and have solar panels, you will not solve the climate crisis. (laughs) And a lot of, you know, a lot of industry has done a good job in trying to say it's all on the individual's fault. You know, we, there's been some great articles recently about the recycling sham and how, you know, a lot of plastics, less than 10% is actually recycled. And this idea of like littering and give a hoot, don't pollute was really companies who manufactured products that never broke down telling individuals they were responsible for cleaning it up. So like, we're very clear Mm -hmm. about that. Like the individuals aren't going to change at all, but individuals can change culture and we need this culture change in order for the big policy fixes that require manufacturers or products to also be responsible for the disposal of what they create, the cradle to grave concept of what you make, that kind of circular design and sustainable design. We need the culture change for those big policy and market solutions to work. So the idea is you can take a step each day that drives that culture change. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It's so interesting to think about that. I think about it that way. I think you're so spot on this idea that it's almost as if we need to educate individual people to to care about this issue, to feel passionately about this issue, to think that they have the agency to do something about this issue so that they will put more pressure on corporations. And, you know, there's, it's almost like you just need psychic awakening, you know, psychological awakening in order for change to occur. Absolutely. And I also think your individual actions can help you deal with your anxiety because when, and I'm specifically thinking about eco-anxiety because the problem of climate change is so big. The more you learn and the more you see where we, what the worst case scenario could be, the more troubling it gets. And when I mentioned 421 PPM, if we don't have radical changes, and we're on track to do that with the new administration in the United States, but if we don't see radical changes, we're on a path potentially for a four to eight degree Fahrenheit temperature rise by 2060. So there's at least one study that shows that. So that's, and, and we can all kind of personally think about what, what would it mean if four to eight degree temperature rise where we are, and we could, we all just intuitively know the impact on wildlife and what our life would be like. Yeah. It just sort of take a moment to absorb yeah. that, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you were to paint a slightly more optimistic <laughs> picture for people, what would you, you know, if, if, um, if everybody does their one daily action and does their one green thing in a day and a month and a year, and if we put pressure on corporations to be more responsible, what's our best case scenario? Uh, we, we can do it. It is absolutely yeah. possible. Uh, there's a, you know, as, as much as One Green Thing is, is talking about leaning into hope, it's talking about climate solutions, the technology and the solutions are all there. We can mm-hmm. really mitigate. I mean, climate change is already happening, but we can mitigate those effects and, and, and put a cap on where we're headed. So what, what that means is not only is there hope to fix it, and another great resource I highly recommend is Project Drawdown. Uh, which I mm. think, did we see Paul Hawkins speak together? Maybe we did, Leslie. I'm not sure. I don't think okay, so. Maybe that didn't. doesn't ring a bell okay. to me. So yeah. Paul Hawkins was the founder of Project Drawdown. And what he did is he got all the best climate scientists in the world together and said, I just want to do a book about solutions and I want to rank these solutions. So he does that and he shows how clear it is that it's all right there. But the exciting thing about the solutions, and I think a lot of people think, oh my gosh, everything's going to be taken away from me. When we start talking about climate solutions, you know, a lot of people are like, it means I can't have this car. I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't eat this. I can't do that. It's the opposite. What we're really talking about is the climate solutions is a positive regenerative culture in society. It's really very exciting where we're thinking about design, where there's rooftop gardens. We're talking about not only energy efficient light bulbs, which we already have access to, but cars that don't pollute and emit gases that cause asthma. You know, we're, we're looking at, you know, making sure folks in West Virginia and Wyoming that are dependent on, on coal and have been for a really long time, that we help introduce wind and solar and new types of, of energy and retrain and start to think about industry that regenerates. So there's a tremendous amount of hope. The best case scenario is that we can hold where we are. We do have scientists, you know, around the world, the United Nations um, International Panel on Climate Change, which is called the IPCC, said that the next 10 years are critical. And we do need to move quickly. And it's up to us to tell our elected representatives 
even in a very divided country we have here in the United States, that it's important for our shared future for all of us that we take action. So, and one of the things that we were, uh, that you emailed me before, and I, I was struck by this because I planned on asking you this question. You sent me something that said 20 companies are responsible for 30% of global carbon emissions. Yes. Yeah. Can you say a little bit about who those companies are and how we stop them? Yeah. It's mostly oil companies that are, and um, the way to stop it, and already we're seeing changes, they're energy companies, right? We think of them as oil companies, but they're energy companies. And the reality is they know that oil and gas are energy sources of the past and they're finite, which is why they're already making big investments, not only in energy efficiency and supporting that, but also in wind and solar. And so I think that what we need to do is recognize that as individuals, it's not all on our shoulders, but we do have an important role to play. And we need to keep demanding accountability for the polluters, but also sending really strong signals that it's time for you to change. Because in in part, because we have this relationship with the, the companies and the brands that we rely on, you know, they are a reflection of us in some some aspects. A lot of it is, you know, very cool uh, marketing from Fifth Avenue, you <laughs> telling us we need stuff we don't really need, but part of it is responding to our demands. So as consumers, we really need to stand up and say a regenerative um, circular economy is really where we want to head. We believe in in sustainability as a principle and as a core of what you should be doing. I know that sounds so simple, Leslie, but there's a tremendous amount of power in that. And I think part of it is is realizing that we do have that power. Um, Dolores, uh, Dolores Huerta of United Farm Workers has this amazing uh, quote where she talks about how most people don't understand how much power they have and that you have to help them see their power. And once they do, there's no going back. <laughs> you know. And so we need to acknowledge the power we have, but also accept that we're not responsible for all of it. Right. That's this whole like Right. You know, the individuals can make the culture change happen and demand the action, but it's not all, it's not our fault. Right. I think there's a lot of guilt involved <laughs> when it comes to parenting and environment. And I'm sure that you cover that as a therapist a lot too. Well, absolutely. And it's also, you know, kind of, uh, man, it's a perennial issue. You know, how do you take responsibility around making positive steps towards a better future that you want for yourself without feeling guilty for not having done that in the past or, or being, you know, it's kind of like a statement we hear a lot, you know, you're not responsible for the things that happened to you in your childhood, but you are responsible for what you do with them as an adult, you know, do you grow? Do you learn? Do you do things differently? Right. There's a lot of fine lines and nuance, I think, around all of that stuff. But so one of the things that I'm so impressed by with what you do and um, just I'm so struck by with all of it is the, the mental health emphasis on the way that you think about these things. And you had sent me this Scientific American article that I'm going to put in the show notes that I devoured about one of the things that really struck me is stories of people going to their therapist with anxiety about climate change and then effectively getting, I would call it gaslit by their therapists into being made to feel like it's a, it's a personal anxiety as opposed to a, a, an absolutely rational response to one's environment. So if you want to maybe unpack eco-anxiety a little bit more for all of us, I know you said you're seeing it in your kids. As you're researching this topic, what else are you learning about the convergence of the climate crisis and what we could consider to be a mental health crisis? Oh, such a great question, Leslie. And I um, am mindful of the cartoon that you shared on social media, mm. where it's basically a clear cut, cut forest and you see a little koala clinging to a tree trunk and uh, someone saying, wow, he really has a, a, a mental health issues. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> I thought that was just a really powerful image of what people are experiencing. So eco-anxiety is not in the DSM, but it is acknowledged by the American Psychological Association as a chronic fear of environmental doom. And that sound, I mean, that sounds really over the top, but it's also very accurate because the more you read about this, the more you see that's where we could be heading if we don't have big systemic, you know, political policy-based and market-based solutions. So as far as mental health goes, I do think there's a little bit of gaslighting of 
this is a personal issue when it is a personal issue because people feel the pain, they feel the empathy, they feel the concern. And at the same time, they know that they can take some action, but they can't fix it themselves. So it's very, you know, it's, it's interesting because I kind of see a parallel and I'd love to know what you think as a psychologist to climate and as a Gen Xer growing up in the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, although I think that, I think climate is much more intense than the Cold War experience, but I'm older than you are. But when I was growing up, it was all about the Soviet Union. Everything, every day I heard something about someone defecting from the Soviet Union or right. there was a, a spy was found someplace. I mean, granted, I lived outside of the DC area, so it was probably more front and center in my world than others. But we had a made-for-TV movie on ABC or NBC called The Day After, Life After Nuclear, A Nuclear Winter and a Nuclear War. There was a movie called Red Dawn about the Russians invading the United States. So it was always kind of like a backdrop to our experience, but I wasn't bombarded with all of those images. So I think that there could be a parallel there. And even though I'm a little younger yeah. than you are, I, I you remember, remember that. that okay, great. You remember childhood. that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so I, th- so I think that there, is, there was, uh, this, this climate thing is always in the backdrop for young people. So as far as the mental health aspect goes, I think it's really important for us to give people things that they can do on a daily basis, have this daily practice of sustainability, even if it's something as simple as meditating outside or going for a walk for the health benefits of being outside, even though they aren't that's not the solution to climate change, but it is a mindfulness and an attention that can really help with that psychological awakening that you're talking about that we all need to be part of. You know, it's such an interesting issue, this thing about sort of whether or not climate anxiety or eco-anxiety, I've also heard it termed extinction anxiety, whether or not it belongs in the DSM, because I'm so struck by what you're describing about your childhood with communism, just kind of like hanging in the background, because we are all, all the time existing in the context of the world that we live in at large, right? And this just happens to be the current context. And I would really wonder whether it would even be useful to put something like eco-anxiety in the DSM, because it's in some ways to do so makes it seem pathological, even if it's an entirely reasonable response to have to what we're living through right now. I mean, I think we could ask ourselves questions around how much is too much anxiety to the point that you were making before, you know, if it gets to the point where somebody is losing, this is the way I would phrase it, their internal resourcefulness. You know, if you're, if you're losing your ability to function because you're becoming paralyzed by anxiety, this is clearly in a more kind of clinical territory where people are struggling more profoundly, but I, I, you know, I'm going to go ahead and argue that having some degree of, of climate anxiety is a completely rational response to what we're living through. I read in 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 a, an article the other night, or it might have been in something you sent me, that oh no, it was in that Scientific American article that 27% of people say they're very worried about global warming. Warming, and I literally wrote a note right here: denial ain't just a river in Egypt. <laughs> what the hell is happening to the other? 73% of people that are what not worried? I mean, I don't know if, you know, I guess I'm just being disclosing about my own state of mind around all of this stuff, but yeah, I have climate anxiety. Yeah. Who 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 is the 73% of people that don't have climate anxiety? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think well, given all the other things you're worried about is at the top of your list. And I was on a college panel recently where two things, one you know, one of the students said, if you don't have anxiety about climate change, you're not paying attention. Right. <laughs> to your point that this is a natural response uh, if it gets to, and, and she was saying it especially happens with environmental science majors. They're all experiencing eco-anxiety because the more they learn, the more concern they get and that they need the hope. And the daily action is a great way for them to try to lean into hope. I think the second thing, and this is from another student was saying, given systemic racism, given poverty, given a global pandemic, this, this is a paraphrase. Is climate anxiety, is it, a, is it a privilege? Do you have to be in a privileged position to have climate anxiety or eco-anxiety? And there have been some articles lately talking about this. And as we talked, we kind of agreed on the panel that it, it's not a place of, of, of privilege, but it's, it's all interrelated. 
right? Because the people who are most affected by climate change are often BIPOC communities. Well, that's actually what I was just thinking is that it's interesting to think that it may be a a function of privilege on some level, that more privileged, more educated people may be less directly impacted and more anxious about it because they're informed. Whereas, you know, there are people in developing nations that arguably are being much more confronted with the actual impact of climate change. They may not be struggling with eco-anxiety per se, because they might, depending on where they are, what they're living through, might not be able to connect the dots. You know, you could be living through having more monsoons where you live, or for example, one of the things that I um, was learning about is sort of the infrastructure of coastal communities and developing nations, you know, are really on the forefront of the impact of climate change. But if the people that live there are less educated, don't necessarily know that what they're suffering through, you know, so it's, I don't necessarily know how to unpack that. I think it's challenging to, to unpack, but I think all of the points that you just made are very relevant The polling recently shows that in the United States, Black, Indigenous, people of color have much higher concern about climate change than than white populations. And I think it's because of what you just said. So this uh, of who's impacted and where. Um, I think that um, this uh, concept of a privilege works two ways. I think it's a way that sometimes climate deniers use to try to undercut the importance of the issue right? It's just a privilege. And I think it also shows that the environmental community, which I've been part of for 25 years, uh, hasn't done a very good job of talking to communities who are most impacted. They haven't done a good job of that. They haven't had um, diversity in their leadership. They haven't um, had diversity in how they communicate and how they also advocate for populations that are most hurt by climate. So there's a lot of work to do, I think, in the traditional big uh, nonprofit community too, to be talking about a climate change and the impacts. But I think we've seen a lot of progress in the last year. A lot more needs to be done too. But the the other thing I was going to talk about, Leslie, is this idea of the eco-anxiety trifecta is kind of what I call it. First, you know, with Generation Z, they are very anxious. My kids would argue that they're more comfortable talking about mental health than the other generations. And so that's why they score higher <laughs> on anxiety. That's what they would say. And and actually, I'm just going to jump in and respond to that really quickly because I remember we were on a board call when that came up and I like what I was like jumping out of my seat and I didn't want to unmute myself on the Zoom. You know, it's funny to think that um, on the one hand, I think that's true. I think that young people today are they feel more comfortable talking about mental health, period. If they feel anxious, they're more likely to talk about it. I think that they also have more reasons to be anxious and they are more anxious. And it's possible that it's a little bit hard for them to have that perspective that their parents' generation. I think they are more anxious, you know, and I am, you know, when we talk about anxiety in our family, you know, we, we have come from a long line of type A stressed out people, (laughs) you know, but there's a difference between being type A stressed out and having clinical anxiety. No, and I also think today kids are kids today are under a lot of stress that that um, kids weren't under yeah. when you and I were or were kids. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and they're just being bombarded between sort so, of you know social media and everything. They are, they are being bombarded and they're constantly plugged plugged in. And and like I said, you know earlier, they're they're plugged into not just what's going on in the neighborhood, what cool what cool brands people are wearing. It's a it's a lot about the pain in the world. And all of yeah. the, the, all that's going on. And then the, so back to this trifecta, the, tri- yeah, yeah. the second is loneliness and Gen Z, um, Cigna does this loneliness survey um, every year. And actually the UK has a minister of loneliness because they've recognized that loneliness, which is interesting, like we're more connected than we've ever been before with technology, but experiencing more loneliness than we have. And then there was a pandemic, but in this, in this evaluation that Cigna does, Gen Z, eight out of 10 Gen Zers experience feelings of loneliness, whereas five out of 10 baby boomers do. So we have a situation where young people are identifying as lonelier than the elderly. It's just, yeah, it's a amazing? heartbreaking that's, statistic. That's a and heartbreaking on top of that, we have the environmental yeah. stress, which we've you know been, been discussing. So those three things, I think, are kind of the trifecta that makes eco-anxiety something that should be on our radar. And that's why this new nonprofit that mm-hmm. I've founded is focused not only on this individual action, but this idea that community connection is really important and also intergenerational partnerships. And 
you know, my, my kids kind of giggle at that because they were afraid, Leslie, that I was going to go on TikTok and start doing dances, <laughs> which I haven't. I promise you I haven't. And that's not in the plan. But what I mean by the intergenerational partnership is that this generation needs to know this is not all on their shoulders. That we are here and we are, you know, as, as much as I joke about trying to share my resume with my kids, I realized I needed to talk more. My husband and I need to talk more about what we did, what we do for a living around the dinner table. You know, we need to have more of these conversations about the big changes that need to happen in our society and let them know that we're here, but also let them know that there is hope and we've done big things before. And so I think that's where this intergenerational partnership can be two directional, where, you know, baby boomers can hear from Gen Z about their concern, but Gen Z could learn from baby boomers about the civil rights movement and the improvements that we've had, even though it's very recent, you know, they could also hear about the nuclear freeze movement. You know, we really did stop the arms race. I mean, we still have a threat of terrorism, but we're not talking about blowing the world up, you know, literally every day in high school, that was a conversation we had, you know, about nuclear winter and of what was happening, you know? So I, I just feel like there's, I feel like there's some opportunities for us to give these young people hope based on what we've overcome before and um, also for them to help us understand their pain. Oh, that's so spot on and beautiful. And I, so just to connect some dots here, because it's interesting to think about some of the things that this does in my brain as I'm thinking about, you know, Gen Z being lonelier than their grandparents' generation was. And, you know, and yeah, it sort of seems ironic in a way that they're more connected via social media and that kind of stuff. But something that I know all all too well with my own research and work is that these online connections are not a substitute for in-person relationships. The reason why they are lonely is because they're connecting to other people online and not in the real world. And there's obviously a lot that could be said about that. Here we are, you know, after having lived through a pandemic for a year. But I know that one of the things that you're encouraging people to do just to connect dots is that it's doing one green thing you know, with other people connecting with people around this positive action, which decreases loneliness. And as the research shows, kind of interestingly, an antidote to eco-anxiety is spending time in nature. So, you know, it sounds like I just get the sense from the things that you do with your kids that some of it is about, about actually getting your hands dirty, right? That some of it is like planting and that kind of stuff. And Maybe you can tell people a little bit about that. Give some people some inspiration around some of the some of the green things you do with your kids. Absolutely, absolutely. And what we do at One Green Thing, and this will also be in the book too, is I've kind of done like an enneagram Myers Briggs personality typing. Yeah. yeah, with with service. And so the idea for a lot of people when we're thinking about climate anxiety and we're thinking about just the overwhelming issue that we're dealing with. Where do you even begin? You know, I gave a hundred dollars to Sierra club. Am I done? You know, like, what do I do next? <laughs> yeah. And yes, please do go do it. Go definitely support environmental organizations, but it's, it's, there's more than you can do than that. So you can kind of take this assessment that I call the surface superpower service superpower assessment and see kind of what you, how do you show up? Are you, do you, are you really focused on the spiritual connection to nature? Is that, is that where you're most comfortable or are you someone who would be um, really focused on the science and the policy and really interested in kind of the, the data and the graphs and the charts? That's someone that I would call a wonk. And so I kind of give you ideas on small steps that you can take um, based on what your service superpower is. So for example, um, as a sage, you might just want to go with a family member or a friend on a hike. Yeah. Or maybe you want to go meditate outside, or maybe you want to work and volunteer in a community garden, or maybe you just literally are going to mindfully water your plants. And if you don't have any plants, maybe you'll get one at the local farmer's market. You know, <laughs> like these are really simple steps to take. And I want to be very clear. I'm not saying you're going to solve the climate crisis because you watered your flower or you went for a hike, but these small steps and these daily habits can really help other people feel like there's a space for conversation, for action, and then help you reduce your anxiety. 
And then I kind of give you ideas and plans based on your personality. I, I, I love that. A couple of things I want to highlight. I mean, I think on the one hand, it's amazing how I think those small actions are so important in part because I think we are where we are because we have wanted to imagine that we are separate from the environment and not a part of it, right? Yeah. We're so, especially in any kind of urban, industrialized part of the world, really, really disconnected from nature. So anything that reconnects us to nature kind of reinvigorates us on a personal level, recontextualizes us in our environment. But one of the things that I really love about that assessment is the the idea that it gives people the ability to engage in their own way, on their own terms. It works with people as opposed to against people. There isn't this idea that you have to be you know, a climate change warrior of a specific stripe, you get to kind of do it in your own way, which is so lovely. Thank you, Leslie. And and I, one of the things that we say on our team is come as you are. Hmm. Everyone is welcome because this challenge is going to require all of us. As much as I say, you know, it seems a little bit of paradoxical to say one individual can't solve the climate crisis, but join us, but all of us together can really create a wave, a culture change that will require policy and market solutions to really get us where we need to go. So that's what I'm very excited about is that everyone has a unique contribution to make in the climate fight and that it starts here. You know, I've seen I've seen I've seen this in so many contexts like start with yourself, do your own work and then you can connect with others. And it can also alleviate your anxiety and help you on a path, which I hope means that you'll become even more active in the movement. I love it. So how do people follow up? Where do they get information about all of this stuff? Thank you. Oh, please visit onegreenthing.org and sign up for our email list. Take the assessment, find out kind of what your service superpower is. Follow us on Instagram at onegreenthing. And then we're also on Twitter at myonegreenthing. So would love to have folks and listeners join in the community. I love it. Thank you so much. Do you, I'll just ask you one last question. Is there anything that we haven't talked about today that is sort of burning in your soul that you got to get out? Is there, do you have any parting thoughts, last words? I guess I would love to hear from you, Leslie, about these small steps and small actions that we're recommending at One Green Thing. I think it's something that the environmental community has missed out on. We've talked a lot about make it personal and trying to make climate change personal, but we need to make action personal and simple. And I would love to hear your thoughts on, you know, mindfulness practice, intention, and how that helps with anxiety in general, because it is important for that culture change and these small actions adding up. I know that works in movement building because I've seen it work in movement building before, but would love as a psychologist to hear what you have to say about how it can help. Now, I'm not talking about clinical anxiety, but like how it can reduce those feelings of anxiousness. Yeah. I just know that ever since I started working with you on this and I have been following your advice and do and, and doing the things you suggest, it's been an interesting consciousness raising exercise for me to think about, you know, what is one green thing that I can do or what's one, you know, a small, small action I can take here, a small action I can take there, maybe even a bigger action over here, you know, or what have you. It's been interesting to be encouraged to self-reflect in that way, because I think that to be really candid, I can feel a bit hopeless about all of this stuff. And so it's been very interesting for me to see that reflected in my own consciousness raising and my own behavior. And I, I really am a big believer in this as a concept that encouraging people to reflect on themselves and their own actions in this way could potentially lead to a really positive outcome, you know, for us and the planet. Uh, in terms of the mindfulness piece, it's really interesting. I think that it is vitally important here. And also I'll add a little caveat. I think that whenever we're dealing with anxiety, a mindfulness-based approach is key just because it brings us back to the present moment. So if you think about that, when we were kind of going into that territory before of when does it, but when does the anxiety become 
clinical, just meaning that it becomes somewhat disabling. At one point, does it become paralyzing? If a person is in that place, and if they were to check in with themselves in the present moment and say, am I okay right now? (laughs) The answer is almost always yes, right? Unless you are sitting on train tracks with a train barreling at you, most likely, like in this very moment, you know, there is not a saber-toothed tiger. Are we okay right now? Yes, we are. I'm sitting in my seat looking at you. You're sitting in your seat looking at me. We both have roofs over our heads. Like we are okay. So that mindfulness-based approach is always useful and instructive. And also, I just wonder how much our task is to pierce through denial. I mean, when I hear something like 27% of people are are anxious about climate change, and again, going back to that idea of what's going on with the 73%. It strikes me that there's there's there are these kind of twin ideas of helping the people that are super super anxious to calm down and helping the people that are maybe a, a little bit in denial to wake up and there's got to be some like on the bell curve of that stuff there's you know some sweet spot in the middle where people are awake and paying attention and not paralyzed by fear Exactly that that makes so much sense. Thank you. I appreciate it. I think we've covered a lot. Thank you so much, Leslie. This is I'm really excited about the podcast and all your work. Thank you so much for doing this with me. That's my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to episode eight of The Nature of Nurture, and I want to thank you for joining me. All of this will be in the show notes, but you can find Heather at onegreenthing.org. On Instagram, she's at onegreenthing. And on Twitter, she's at myonegreenthing. I, as always, can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Leslie Carr. And my website is lesliecarr.com. If you found this conversation valuable, let me know by leaving a review or a rating. It helps immensely to get the word out about the podcast and into the ears of those who may need it most. It will also help me to understand what you're getting out of our conversations. And you can subscribe, if you haven't already, wherever podcasts are sold. Many, many thanks to my producer and sound editor, Amanda Roscoe Mayo. I could not have done this without you. And to Heather for having this conversation with me. Thank you to Donio Dulio for the artwork. And thanks as well to Steve Van Dyke, Leon Tyler Sargent, and Joe Potts for their permission to use their music. The band was called Clown Down. Clowndown.